live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working-class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon. Friends, welcome to Ballad of an American. What does Paul Robeson's life teach us today? Thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to, to log in. I, we all look forward to a day where we can do events like this in person. But maybe the gift of technology allows us to gather in solidarity in our, our commitment to making this world and our country better. Maybe it allows us to gather from different parts of the country um, in, in the way that we are tonight. So thank you for being a part of this. And we want to express gratitude to everybody who's made this night possible so far, especially uh, Maxine Phillips for her vision for this event and Lawrence Dreyfus, who's working tech right now. This event is sponsored by the Religion and Socialism Working Group of DSA. Some of, several of the members are with us uh, this evening. It's also sponsored by the DSA Fund, the International Committee of the DSA, and the Democratic Socialists of America, Afro-Socialist and Socialists of Color Caucus, as well as Rutgers University Press, which is offering a very special discount to viewers that you'll hear about later. We are gathered here in many ways to reflect on a wonderful work of art about the person who I think is the greatest critical artist in American history, Paul Robeson. There's just too much to say about who Paul Robeson was and who he remains in the American imagination. In many ways, the greatest, one of the greatest athletes in our nation's history. He played two college sports at Rutgers, basketball and football, and went on to be um, is one of the people describe him as one of the greatest college football players of all time, two-time All-American. To to that in itself is history making. He went on to play professional football. He was elected Phi Beta Kappa uh, for academic excellence, being one of the first Black graduates there at Rutgers University. But many people know him mostly for his his voice, his deep, rich bass baritone and his gifts for music took him all around the world. He was then an actor on stage and in film, all the while being a practicing attorney for a while. But I think one of the most relevant aspects of his story, relevant for us, us this evening, was his role as a progressive and leftist activist, a global citizen, truly beloved the world over. But it cost him. And we'll share a little about more about that later tonight, too. I'd like to introduce... Uh, Paul Burrell, who, along with Lawrence Ware, co-edited this amazing graphic biography here that was illustrated by Sharon Rudall. Paul is the author of nearly 40 books on subjects like Eugene Debs, Che, Rosa Luxemburg, Marxism in the U.S., The Hollywood Blacklist, and much more. Retired senior lecturer at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. He right now is calling home in Wisconsin, I believe. Also the co-editor of the Encyclopedia of the American Left and the authorized biographer of his interlocutor, CLR James. Sir, you've been involved and helped to build in many ways the American Left over the last few decades. It is an honor to engage with you. Thank you for being with us uh, this evening. I, if it's okay, I'd like to ask a first question to you. Could you talk a little bit more about the process of pulling this book together? Um, it, it, I'm just so excited to see it. Can you tell us how, where the idea came from, what it was like, all that? Let me take a little backward step to uh, how I came to understand about uh, uh, Paul Robeson. In the 1960s, unless you had a connection with the left of the 1940s, it wasn't so likely you would hear Paul Robeson's voice. His musical style uh, was out of fashion. 
One didn't even hear him among the new folk singer types. Uh, and consequently, you needed to take a step back into history. For me, that step was through C.L.R. James, who wrote The Black Jacobins, the famous history of uh, the revolution uh, led by uh, Toussaint Louverture in Haiti. Uh, and uh, James had been an act, a, 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 a theatrical writer in the 1930s, and he wrote for Paul Robeson a theatrical adaptation of his history, uh, The Black Jacobins. And although they parted politically along different lines of the left, they always retained a, a personal connection. And in 1970, C.L.R. James uh, said uh, that uh, Robeson committed himself completely to freeing the black people of the United States from the evils of imperialism and capitalism in general, and to making America a place where all men, black and white, could live in peace. For that goal, he sacrificed a grand career, that a man of such magnificent powers and such reputation gave up everything, such is the quality which signalizes the truly heroic figure. That's sort of it. I had thought of uh, Paul Robeson as a, as a heroic figure of enormous stature for 20 or 30 years, as long as I had been thinking about writing the history of the American left. Uh, but uh, Rutgers University celebrated, belatedly one might say, but celebrated the enormity of his uh, contribution uh, a century after his graduation in 1919. We, we missed that by a little bit with bringing out the comet. Uh, but uh, for me, uh, it was a realization of a long uh, felt aspiration to conceive of this work and to, uh, to make it available in a form beyond or different from the prose biographies. Uh, there hasn't been a movie made about Paul Robeson yet. There have been documentaries that deserve to come back. Uh, but to do it in a form, a graphic novel, which is most accessible to uh, people around the world who are, let us say, under 35 or under 30, and who have taken on this new form, the graphic novel is sort of a, a, a style of artwork, popular artwork, most conducive to them learning about things that they would be hard-pressed to learn about otherwise. And I want to also say uh, Lawrence Ware is one of the outstanding uh, uh, socialists of, of color and intellectuals of any kind within DSA, and uh, a writer on sports and culture and other things. And I believe he belonged to the same fraternity that uh, Paul Robeson had belonged to. So he had a very special connection with him and felt that all of his life practically, perhaps when he was 17, someone said, you know the thing you're joining Paul Robeson was uh, in, involved in. So that's very important to him. Sharon Rudolph is a person who's a 71-year-old uh, feminist artist dating back her work to the early 1970s when so-called underground comics blew apart the power of comics corporations to dominate anything a comic artist could do when uh, young people were establishing their own art forms. Uh, she's from uh, left-wing parents in Washington, D.C. She was actively marching in civil rights movements uh, in the later 1950s. And I should say, uh, she's aspired to do something like this her entire life. So we, we, we are the team and uh, Rutgers University was extremely eager to place uh, Paul Robeson uh, in the annals of uh, the university itself and to make the world uh, know a great deal more about him. I want to pick up with that, with what you just said there at the end. Why does the world not know more about Paul Robeson right now? I mean, I think at his at his height, uh, you know, someone in my family described him as kind of part. If you if you brought LeBron James and peak Michael Jackson, um, and you you know um, Reverend Barber all together in the same person, in some ways that is who Paul Robeson was, just known all around the world, a celebrity and a larger than life figure who was at so many demonstrations and on the radio all the time. And yet now, 
a, a, a lot of people don't know who he was. I was sharing with my daughters about this event and, and had to remind them who Paul Robeson was. What happened? Why, why is this not, why is it not a household name anymore? Uh, I want to start a little more on why and how he was so spectacularly famous uh, with two anecdotes. One is somebody says in the 1940s, I think somewhere in the Democratic Party, uh, if only he were white, he'd be president. You know, all American, actor, singer, fabulous charisma. You know, he had charisma before Obama was born. He had that much charisma and more. Um, and on the radio during World War II, of course, there was a great deal of patriotic music. There was a great emphasis on getting the public behind the war and to defeat fascism and build a better world. There were two songs that people listened to and were played almost continuously on some radio station through the war years. Uh, one was uh, uh, God Bless America by Kate Smith. Everyone I think has heard, it's quite a conservative song by quite a conservative singer, someone who was notorious for her racial views among other things. But the one that people don't remember uh, is the Ballad for Americans. Uh, it's a saga uh, through a song of how America can be better than it is. All races, all religions, that's America to me. He was, through his voice, through the power of his voice, but also the words, he was uplifting the public to reach for something better, even as, even as the war was going on. He was urging people, permitting them to reach up towards something better. And uh, people felt that. <laughs> the millions of people wanted to hear Paul Ropes sing. Um, so that's a very high peak. Then uh, comes the uh, end of World War II. The horrors of the Holocaust are known. Uh, there's uh, an attempt through the United Nations to say none of these horrible things will happen again, and furthermore, we'll stop wars from happening in the future. Uh, and then we're up to 1946, and the Cold War erupts. And uh, what uh, Dwight Eisenhower later called the military-industrial complex comes into the picture in peacetime to play a major role in the U.S. economy. And there are conflicts between the United States and Soviet Union. And another conflict that bothered American leaders very much, which is to say the destruction of uh, the West, so-called West in World War II, and also of Japan and China, released a torrent of uh, movements, rebellious movements in the global South that had been stirring since at least the 1910s and in many cases long before that. But the colonial forces were so weakened by 1945 uh, that uh, from Vietnam to distant parts of Africa uh, to uh, uh, Latin America and other parts of the, the Philippines, a sense came that this was the moment for people of the global South to break free, not only to break free of existing colonial powers, uh, Britain and France and, and others, but also to break free of uh, indirect colonial power, the power of U.S. corporations to dominate the economies of Latin America and the willingness of Americans through the so-called Monroe Doctrine to go in and invade and uh, overthrow governments and implant governments that were friendly toward American business. There was this sense that a new world was going to be made from the global south up. Paul Robeson had gone to the extent of studying African languages in London and had taught himself a dozen other languages, at least to sing songs, but also to embrace them in some kind of way. And as he went around the world singing songs in the languages of the people who were in the audience, he was trying to express this notion fully that this was a society that was coming into reality around the world. Well, that was met very coldly in Washington, D.C. The enormous fear was that if the United States didn't support these uh, struggles from below, the Russians would support them. And that would be a, a calamity for the world. It would be a calamity for American business. It would be a calamity for American prestige. So uh, that before 1950, Paul Robeson came to present himself as part of the threat from what would later be called the third world. 
Uh, it was easy to label him a red, uh, and uh, CLR James observed that if Paul Robeson blinded himself about events in the Soviet Union, as he did, it was because he saw no other world power providing the money and resources and encouragement for these revolts through the global south. The United States certainly didn't do it. England didn't do it. France didn't do it. But the Soviet Union, for its own reasons, uh, encouraged these uh, rebellions. And Paul Robeson thought this was the only way to get those rebellions to the point where they could actually take power in their countries. Uh, and they did eventually uh, manage to take some power and then lost it again through neocolonialism. But you can say if you were exaggerating fears, as all fears were exaggerated in the later 1940s through the Cold War, that American leaders were terribly afraid of the great, of the huge, strong black man who seemed to represent a different world that would be unacceptable to them and would bring the shame of American racism to the eyes of the world. It, it, it can't be overstated how hard uh, the country came down on folks who were sus suspected of being communists, of being sympathetic to, um, uh, to 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 the left in some ways. You know, my my grandfather was very good friends with Brother Robeson, and he, like Paul Robeson and W. B. Du Bois and others, sought forces and spaces and institutions and movements that could help the broader black liberative effort in, in America and, and the broader liberative effort of, of peoples around the world. And many felt that could happen through religious spaces, through the church. Many thought that could happen maybe through Islam. Uh, many felt like this could also happen um, through communism. And as, as you said, uh, in so many ways, Russia and the sort of global socialist movement pushed into the black liberative efforts here because America certainly wasn't fighting for it. The American government certainly wasn't interceding. And so, um, you know, I think my grandfather uh, with Paul Robeson and others traveled to you know, Warsaw and then traveled over to, to Russia to, to study and see what was going on, is, and is this a path for us? And that was a no-no in America. And the cost, it cost my grandfather his career and his reputation in, in Iowa back then. And it certainly cost Paul Robeson, uh, literally his passport. He had his sort of passport blocked. He, this sort of the right to travel was taken from him. And then no longer was he getting booked for uh, the concerts, no longer was he getting booked for the, the gigs in Hollywood. And sort of the um, black moderates began to back away from Paul Robeson. And it, and it cost him his career. He was, he was systematically destroyed, not unlike some people today, not unlike some public figures who've taken major stances today um, have, been, have had their careers hurt. Paul, do you see any parallels with, with public figures who've taken stances on issues today? Uh, again, let me take another step backward into American history because this might cast some light here. Paul Robeson's most eager audiences were in Carnegie Hall, the great numbers of people of all, uh, all races, perhaps progressive Jews more than anyone else. Uh, but the, his audiences also were in union halls, especially union halls with particular ethnic groups, uh, Slovenians, uh, Czechs, Hungarians, Greeks, and others. And uh, the reason he was able to tap these people is that in the middle of the 1930s, here comes Franklin Roosevelt in a terrible American depression. And Franklin Roosevelt is pushed forward by this new vast industrial union movement, the Congress for Industri Industrial Unions, the CIO. And uh, the CIO is made up of uh, a million ordinary Americans, blue collar Americans, 
but especially strong in many industries were these children of European immigrants who worked in the mines and worked in the mills and so forth. They existed within a sort of collective uh, ethnic culture, individual of their own groups, but uh, nevertheless uh, united in many ways. They would come to Washington, D.C. It's hard for us even to think about this and put on their native costumes from their European uh, parents and grandparents and seek to demonstrate in this way that America didn't belong to white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. It didn't belong to white people. It belonged to all of the people who were here. This combined sensibility that they had gave them an enormous amount of strength to build those unions, to come in and reelect Roosevelt, especially in 1944, because the resistance towards Franklin Roosevelt was enormous by 1944. The Republicans were pushing back against all the gains that had been made. Uh, and uh, with that victory in 1944, with that sense that uh, we were going to move forward, uh, was a, a great strength of American democracy and a great promise of American democracy. They call it the popular front. It didn't have anything to do with making the United States another Soviet Union. It was to push American democracy forward with a, a, a matter of world peace to make it uh, conceivable that we could push forward and to keep going toward uh, racial equality. And uh, as raised during World War II, uh, gender equality as well. All these things were moving forward until they were stopped cold. Uh, and among the ways they were stopped cold, uh, just one more uh, footnote by the way here, were a return to right-wing religion, right-wing uh, white religion in the South, the return of the Ku Klux Klan and its various relatives who were desperate to stop the advance of, of integration. Uh, and uh, political forces, sometimes in the Democratic Party, sometimes in the Republican Party, who didn't not who made up their mind to stop this movement dead, uh, and did all they could in in the years after. Uh, what we can see now uh, is uh, progressive and even not so progressive uh, governors who are Democrats and public officials and advocates for this and that. Uh, not only threatened with uh, kidnapping and murder and so forth by these uh, uh, right-wing lunatics who are being ur urged on from various quarters, but we also see progressives being uh, given death threats on a daily basis, death threats to themselves and their families, to silence them, to make it impossible to resist the move movements back uh, uh, towards the right. Uh, it uh, has affected so many progressives that even to select some progressives, the ones who haven't uh, had any harm done to them, would, would be difficult. But the pressure upon progressive people does resemble the progressive, the pressure upon them in the late 1940s. There's no mistaking that. Uh, the same kind of uh, threats, the same kind of violence, all that was there in the 1940s. And the Cold War allowed it to happen. The Cold War made it almost patriotic to threaten people and to try to intimidate uh, liberals and progressives. So yes, absolutely, uh, people that stand up are often in danger today, more in danger if they don't happen to be white, but in danger in any case. Uh, we face it now and we better face up to it. Brother, you are dropping knowledge, man. You are dropping history in, in this conversation, and I'm thankful for it. I, as, as you speak, I'm, I'm seeing the face of people like Colin Kaepernick. Um, and, and in some ways, other other major figures, Maya Moore in the WNBA, um, LeBron James. I think part of the, the difference is it was kind of a blow that Kaepernick could take, certainly a blow LeBron could take. I mean, he's told to shut up and dribble and not talk about George Floyd, Trayvon Martin. And when he's told to kind of keep it moving and just perform for us, you know, LeBron is one of the wealthiest people on the planet. And he, in a lot of ways, carries the WNBA and he will not get sit down. They won't punish him. Kaepernick, I think was a little different, but Kaepernick himself also a millionaire at, at that point. Robeson, you know, they never suffered poverty because of the way that he was attacked, but he certainly wasn't, yeah, LeBron James uh, level. 
and, well, and, yeah. it, and it hurt him not just financially, but but mentally in a whole lot of ways and emotionally. Yeah. Um, you Let's know, step back because uh, uh, you can handle this better than me, and, and certainly in some ways. Um, think of the role of sports in 20th century American society. Uh, Jim Thorpe, uh, a great example, a great exemplar to to many people, Uh, but uh, also Paul Robeson on the the football gridiron. By the middle 1940s, it was said there was hardly uh, a place in Africa, a village where a reproduction of a photo of Joe Lewis was not available. The powerful black man who resisted all white threats, there he was. Uh, And uh, in my time, uh, uh, Muhammad Ali, a representative of so much pride and uh, so much courage and and so much dexterity that for a while he resisted the forces on all sides and uh, became in his own way one of the outstanding anti-war orators in the country, most amazingly so considering everything about his life. Uh, And then we uh, get to the Olympics of 1970, and we get to many events later on, and then finally comes the summer of uh, Black Lives Matter uh, and uh, fulfilling what uh, Colin Kaepernick had in mind. I don't think anything more impressive, you know, in a summer of incredibly impressive developments was more impressive than what happened among professional uh, athletes, black professional athletes, and those who sympathize with them. It was an example to the entire nation of the role of people in popular culture and the courage of people in popular culture doing things that would have gotten them fired if they didn't all do them together. It's such a powerful example, sir. And, you know, if, if um, my favorite form of communication is tangent. So if I can go on a, on a quick tangent, there's a picture that my family has of my mother and Muhammad Ali. Mm. And my sister, who loved to pray planks, pranks on me, uh, told me one day that, it's a family secret, Jazz, but Muhammad Ali's your dad. <laughs> and and kept this lie going for like a week. Well, I'm sure you were very handsome. Well, I mean, I, I thought I could fight all of a sudden. I thought I had sort of Ali in me. But I ended up participating in my first protest that week, too. After deep diving into Ali and what he did um, around the war. I, 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 and then she kind of burst my bubble and said, you're not Ali's kid and 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 I, I still am a little bitter today about it but i bring that up because the importance of folks who stand up mm. and risk everything like ali kaepernick but particularly like paul robeson because it's the right thing to do at great personal cost it's the right thing to do it's a couple of the questions that have been been coming up i've been talking about the connection between uh wb du bois and Paul Robeson, and 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 one, I'll 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 queue it up, and I'd love for you to sort of dive a little deeper. A part of it is they're also in that same fraternity um, that Brother Law is in, and, and that I also am in. And this is part of the reason I, why I think we sort of pursued uh, Alpha Phi Alpha is because of, of of the presence of people like Du Bois, Martin Luther King, and uh, complicated folks too, Adam Clayton Powell, and and Paul Robeson. They were they were fraternity brothers. Um, but they were also, I think, Du Bois, um, Robeson sort of reaches out to Du Bois, one as a teacher. And again, remember, this is a Phi Beta Kappa mind that Paul Robeson had, and in perpetually learning and picking up languages so he can perform in different languages and uh, around the world and learning Russian and Yiddish and other, and just like a really powerful figure there. But he wanted to continue to learn about progressive efforts around labor and anti colonialism and anti racism. And so he reaches out to Du Bois and they become good friends. There's an interesting book about the relationship um, of, of Robeson and Du Bois specifically that came out a few years ago as well. Um, they both end up campaigning for a name that was invoked in the chat, Henry Wallace, and speak at the, the Progressive Convention um, here that was in Philadelphia, not too far from where I am right now. And Robeson, I think, sings at that convention and they end up going to Iowa and, and campaigning and, and so forth before Du Bois ultimately goes to Ghana and leaves the country. But there are other connections. What do you think, sir? Well, uh, there's a, a magazine that uh, Du Bois published and Robeson uh, wrote frequently for called Freedom. Uh, NYU uh, digitized it. So it's right there, Freedom Newspaper, 1950 to 1955. You'll see uh, Paul Robeson and Du Bois and 
uh, Lorraine Hansberry and uh, the young Harry Belafonte and all kinds of uh, outstanding figures side by side. And it's almost a college education to look at the file of that uh, magazine. It doesn't take too long. It didn't last uh, more than 10 years, but there's a great deal in it. Uh, du Bois took a, a different path uh, in so many ways from any other American intellectual because uh, as uh, uh, the head of the Urban League of all things said in 1963, if you want to know how we got here to the March on Freedom, go to Souls of Black Folk, this book that appeared in 1903, and there we will find the truths that you need to know about uh, black life in America and about the destiny of America at large. They're there in Du Bois's thoughts when he was still a young man. Well, Du Bois had to go on to write Black Reconstruction, which along with uh, C.L.R. James's Black Jacobins are two of the greatest history books ever written in the 20th century. I only uh, put the E.P. Thompson's Making of the English Working Class along with them, but two of the three greatest social history books in the 20th century written by black men. Uh, du Bois uh, prepared the way for a Robeson. Uh, du Bois made the grand vision of society from the, uh, the unknown, from the other side, or the double vision, as, uh, as, as Du Bois called it, the experience of looking at things and realize people were looking at you from the outside and you had to understand what that outside view was, a very confusing and distressing perspective. Uh, I, I don't think it's a, a, a false idea that he helped to train Robeson in that outside, inside view because Robeson as a stage performer, uh, from Othello onward, had to deal with his, how to deal with race in a creative way that no one had yet created, and to come to his own conclusions. I, when I'm speaking about uh, Robeson, I often say something that puzzles uh, listeners because it puzzles me, and for which there is no simple answer. If there is an answer, Robeson said more than once that for black people to imitate white people, for black people to wish to assimilate into the white world was the worst mistake they could ever make because they have their own, uh, own unique contribution to keep this world from being destroyed. Uh, it's a tremendously difficult thought, but Robeson kept that in his mind. And uh, I think as we uh, read Robeson or, or listen to him, if we had an hour, we would certainly start out with some Robeson music, but it's right there on YouTube. You can hear uh, Old Man River uh, with the enormous power from the showboat film in the mid thirties. Uh, you can hear, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night. Uh, and you can hear Ballad for Americans. And as you listen to those, it's a universal experience the power of the voice, the power of the vision beyond the voice uh, is such that it's better than integration. It's better than assimilation into a white world as the white world exists now. It's something else that takes us to a different place. You know, it's uh, like the finest aspects of jazz. Suddenly we're in some place we've never been before. Whew. Yeah. You invoke Old Man River. <laughs> I keeps laughing to keep from crying. <sighs> I won't stop fighting until I'm dying. You, you, you spoke about something that came up in one of the questions that a really fascinating question from Lucretia Williams here. She says, could Paul Robeson be described as a nationalist, a believer of black integration into the all American dream rather than a revolutionary against American hegemony? His life sounds like a liberal fantasy, a la talented 10th. I, I, I'm curious your thoughts on it. It's a complicated question and in so many ways, who can know the mind of anyone in yeah. history? Um, yeah, and, and and who can know the mind of somebody in, in 1945 or 1940 when uh, lynchings were still common in the South? Totally. The very idea that uh, full equality were possible would be uh, distant from the mind. Mm -hmm. um, we uh, can come from uh, Robeson to Malcolm X, whose name is now heard more often than any time in the last 40 years, and ask ourselves why. Uh, Malcolm X is a more interesting figure to us than uh, in two generations. And uh, the answer may be that uh, the experiences that brought about Black Lives Matter made many Black people feel as if they don't have a home in white America unless white America changes it very much. That they are remaining 
despite their enormous, vital, necessary contribution. Uh, America was built upon the cotton trade uh, as uh, uh, the Caribbean was built upon and the European riches were built upon the sugar trade. Um, uh, uh, nevertheless, aren't, aren't asked to join, aren't part of it in the, in the fullest sense. So that black nationalism is, for me, inevitably a sort of hedge. It's, it's a reminder that uh, until full equality is achieved or something along those lines, that black nationalism of a kind must remain, which is a different way of responding to uh, the uh, uh, to the questioner, uh, no uh, liberal America, uh, meritocratic America had no place for uh, Paul Robeson, the meritocrat who would be beloved as the greatest hip hop artist is beloved, and then is driving down the street home and is stopped by a white cop and threatened. That wouldn't be uh, uh, Paul Robeson's idea of success. It, it's it's a, it's such a fascinating question. I think in one sense too to to give room for historical figures to be on a journey themselves. And so you know, seventeen year old Robeson who enrolls at Rutgers and is and is trying to make the football team, and then goes on to be one of the great actors of of his generation, and truly wrestles with the complexity of stage success while playing stereotypical black figures there on stage and in movies and step and fetch kind of things and kind of playing dumb, um, big, scary, threatening figures there, yet also becoming very successful and in, in relative back then kind of wealthy and taking care of his, of his family and being, it, it, that Robeson's very different than Robeson at the end of his life, who has grown and learned a whole lot and I think returns to America from, from Russia and returns after being questioned by you know, those kind of in McCarthyism, I think he's in a different place. I think sort of after a relationship with Du Bois and, and meeting other Pan-Africanists in England and around, he sort of really does emerge um, in a different spot. But what were his, it's an interesting question, what were his goals for America? Mm-hmm. And and was that on the radar? Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I think... I think of him and Du Bois and CLR James and others. I'm not sure the goal was to reform America and and have a revolutionary chapter in American history, as opposed to the goal is black liberation and the liberation of other peoples. Um, and maybe that happens through the the toppling of capitalism and contemporary kind of neoliberal capitalism, or or maybe it happens through kind of assimilation into whatever. Um, kind of old Americana there was. I, I'm not sure the goal was to fix America. I think that's a, a very, very good point. Uh, and the emphasis on culture, the emphasis on music, which is the most translatable culture probably, uh, the possibilities of film for Du Bois, I mean, for Robeson, which were not at all realized. He was as bitterly disappointed with film as Fast Waller was with film. They could only go so far and they were still playing the black man, the funny black man or the exaggerated black man. The possibilities for uh, film to do something entirely different with the, with the figure of Paul Robeson, uh, incidentally raised by the, the uh, writers and, and producers and directors who were blacklisted in 1950. The possibilities that were there were the possibilities not just for better Hollywood movies, but for a global cinema and and you could say uh, global television, global streamed uh, entertainment, so-called entertainment, that through the best forms of art and uh, uh, both uh, CLR James and Robeson were great appreciators of Shakespeare without uh, uh, failing to note the limits of Shakespeare's time. But they believed in the drama, they believed in theater, they believed in the power of art to explain and uplift, uh, just to take on the cultural aspect, to create and be part of a global culture that was enriched with the power of uh, ordinary people, but also all of the cultures uh, present and all the cultures that seemed to have been forgotten. Uh, the one of the the great uh, the so-called uh, James Joyce of the Caribbean, Wilson Harris, uh, said 
that uh, the cultures that made us possible are still somewhere within us. The ones that have been destroyed and wiped out apparently didn't exist. He was speaking of Guyana, his, his home society, are there still somewhere within us. And to bring those cultures back to restore what humanity has been searching for, uh, the meanings that it's searching for are there somewhere within its cultural aspirations and with the sharing of, of one culture to another. That's the aspiration that helps to make the politics work or could make it work possibly. Mm. One of the things that's been brought up in the Q&A has been um, Paul Robeson's relationship with religion. And, you know, to, tonight's conversation is co-sponsored by a uh, the Religion and Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, a group I've, I've been delighted to kind of recently plug in with of just good people who are interesting and, and funny and cool and people of faith trying to make this world better, people of faith who sort of orienting um, as socialists here as well. I, I'm curious your thoughts on it, man, but it's an interesting question for me. I mean, in many ways, Robeson's son of a preacher, preacher's kid, I think my three daughters kind of sympathize with with that joy and struggle and gift and torture of being a, a PK in, in many ways. And his sort of love of music first comes through him singing um, what became, became known as Negro spirituals, um, historic sort of slave songs. And he becomes famous in a lot of ways, capture, wrapping his voice around these sort of ancient songs there that have been passed down um, to us and that end up becoming a big part of particularly Black Christian uh, hymnody in, in so many ways. But as he kind of continues, and, and as so many um, of us on the left feel, we have a complicated relationship with religion. So much of the oppression that ropes and experiences comes from religious spaces, sort of you know racism and capitalism wrapped in Christianity. Mm. I think we still see some of that a lot today where there was sort of the capital insurrection or whether it was sort of the last four years of Trump, many of much of this is wrapped in kind of a um, a white nationalist Christian evangelicalism. And yet you also have others on the other side, Barbara on the other side, um, folks in the, in this side on the other side. But what role throughout his journey do you think did 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 his faith, did religion, did spirituality play in Robeson's passion for making the world a better place, for pushing back against oppressive systems in society. I guess I'm coming back to W. Du Bois and the souls of black folk and to the comic I'm working on with uh, the uh, Jamaican uh, family artist, Paul Pert Smith, to wrestle with this because Du Bois says in the late 19th century that uh, without uh, religion, uh, African-Americans, uh, black people in America would be lost. It's their way of seeing the world. It's their way of accepting the otherwise completely unacceptable. And that whatever they develop, however they develop, they will develop alongside and within that black religion. Paul Robeson made black spirituals into accepted and acceptable music for the first time. It had been regarded uh, in the hymnology and other things as something thrown in, some nice little folklore. You didn't take it very seriously, but it, my, people might be interested in it. Almost like uh, pop songs from the 1960s were accepted in churches by uh, the 1990s as a, a way to get people to come back to church. Uh, he meant something very different by gospel music. And uh, he meant that it would express something that was unique and also that expressed something Pan-African, which is of, of vital importance to, uh, to uh, Du Bois and to, uh, to Paul Robeson. Um, the power of that uh, music is... Uh, inescapable, the power of music in the civil rights movement of the 1950s. You can't imagine the civil rights movement of the 1950s without that power, uh, or uh, Martin Luther King Jr. preaching without the, the power of, of the, the choir behind him, uh, and uh, uh, so forth and so forth. Um, how was it that Du Bois managed to offer up a synthesis of music and culture 
politics, music, and culture to uh, audiences, not only of uh, Jewish Americans, who those who were left-wing were very largely atheistic, but audiences of uh, Lithuanian, Slovenian, Croatian, Greek, Finnish uh, factory workers uh, and field workers who also coming from Europe, escaping the oppression of European religions were by and large, the left wing among them, the union people among them, very, very atheistic. But uh, they heard something in Paul Robeson and they were to hear it in Lead Belly as well uh, in a great concert in Carnegie Hall, Spirituals to Swing, 1938. They heard something in that black religion that gave them an insight into the role of religion and social change that they had never gathered before. I should add on a personal basis that uh, it was, first of all, for me and my background, the Christian Youth Fellowship that gave me a chance to urge the civil rights movement on more than a small circle of my friends. And that in the midst of that phenomenal development in 2011, 2012, known as the Wisconsin Uprising, the singular thing that kept the struggle together for two years was the sing-along chorus. It became the most extended sing-along chorus of any uh, labor-oriented uh, movement in, in recent American history. So here they were singing five or six days a week against the oppressive governor and the Republicans and four unions that were made up largely of, uh, of women, teachers and social workers. And, uh, and I became friendly to them and like other people, uh, more or less willingly went along with them, keeping my own voices, singing voice as quiet as possible. And I would say to them, tell me, where did you learn to get into this sing-along chorus and sing so beautifully? And these are plain people from Wisconsin. And they would say, church, of course. Where else would we learn how to sing like this for labor? So the roots are deeper than people think they are. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. You know, I there's a lot of good shout outs to uh, some of the communities of faith that are working hard on progressive causes, whether it's the Quakers or the UU Church. I see that in there. Um, there's some wonderful sort of new gatherings about uh, Jewish socialists and Muslim socialists happening around the country as well. I'm an Episcopalian priest and a whole lot of us on the left of, of many issues. And, and, and if I could speak personally for a moment, I'm a socialist because of my faith. Um, I, the, my interpretation of Christian scripture is exactly why I, I'm here. And yet I also recognize that there are parts of my faith tradition that are pushing back on all these issues. And, and, and we must not let oppressive sides of our traditions be the only voice, um, the, the only representation of these major world religions and traditions. We, we really have to reclaim uh, rec reclaim that. So I, I appreciate you sharing, uh, sharing, sharing too, brother. I, I think we're sort of coming down toward toward the end of our of our of our time. There was another question though. If you, it, someone asked if you could speak a little bit more about the decision to write these biographies as as graphic comics, it, it's to me. I'm a comic book geek. I'm like a lifelong X Men kind of person and. And there's, it's complicated. It's like a pacifist person to sort of see such violent stuff, but I love the X-Men and I love Avengers and all that kind of stuff. And so when I got it, opened it, I was like, this is a, it's a graphic comic. This is so dope. This is so fresh. Why write like that? Could you speak a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, uh, when I was uh, 10 years old, I had two heroes, two idols. One was Willie Mays, who to me was the greatest person in the world. And second was a guy named Harvey Kurtzman, who was editing Mad Comics and would go on to edit Mad Magazine. Willie Mays for all the obvious reasons. Harvey Kurtzman because he, through satire, was showing uh, what commercial culture and American culture really was, not all bad stuff at all, but revealing truths by uh, ripping off the artifice. Uh, comics could do that. By the uh, early 1970s, I published a comic in 1969 called Radical America Comics. Uh, and by the 1970s, they were creating in new ways, all kinds of things that had never been seen in comics before. They were anti-war, they were ecological, uh, they were feminist, uh, and uh, other kinds of things that were outside 
existing uh, uh, radical cultures or seemed outside them. And then in the mid-1990s, suddenly trailing after the rest of the, uh, the world, uh, Americans began to recognize comics were an art form. And Art Spiegelman's comic Mouse about the Holocaust was the first one to really be recognized in that uh, framework. Uh, and uh, after the turn of the century, uh, more comics uh, uh, began to appear in a sort of august status, something that even the New York Times would comment on. But uh, for me, the uh, approach of the centenary of the industrial workers of the world, one of the very great social movements in America, not only labor, but music and satire and everything else you can imagine. They were almost at their 100th anniversary. And so I brought together a group of older artists and younger artists to create this thing uh, that had a lot of power, has a lot of power still. And from there, I went along to do things that I thought could reach young people. The, the, I would say that the most successful is an adaptation of Howard Zinn's People's Sister of the U.S. We called it the People's History of American Empire. Uh, and uh, I think maybe 100,000 people bought it so far. But, but all the other efforts are in the same direction in terms of teaching but also in terms of opening up art forms, opening up a new art form, a newly appreciated art form for uh, older generations of artists who could never really express themselves till they expressed themselves in comic art and new generations of artists who are coming on strong. Uh, I wanna say with a pinch of envy with much more admiration that uh, number 50 in the best selling of all Amazon books today is called the Black Panther Party comic. Uh, I just saw an excerpt from it. It's perfectly fantastic. It's gonna sell a million copies and it will educate young people about the Black Panther Party better than uh, books have and maybe even better than documentary films have. Each genre has its own contribution. But the idea that this can deliver, another really wonderful example of March, three volumes on Congressman John Lewis, a phenomenal bestseller, every possible award assigned to entire undergraduate freshman classes. Those are volumes that teach people things in ways that they will not as easily be taught otherwise. So every role in every possible category of art and culture has its contribution to make to uh, push our society forward and make it more international and other things we wish it to be. And uh, comics uh, is doing its role at the best we can anyway. I love it. I love it. I would like to pause real quick and invite Brother Caleb Taylor in to, to share something real quick. Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you so much, Charles and Paul, um, for giving me the space. Um, really quick, uh, my name is Caleb Taylor. Uh, I'm a staff organizer for YDSA. Um, that's the Young Democratic Socialists of America, the youth arm of DSA. Um, I just wanted to invite everyone. We're having a student um, debrief of this wonderful uh, conversation on Thursday. Um, I'll drop the link in the chat to go ahead and register for that. So if any students um, are in attendance, whether in high school or college, um, and you want to continue this great discussion, definitely encourage you to register for that. Thank you. Thank you. Do want to echo that invitation. Please plug in YDSA is a great, uh, great branch of the movement right now and with, with strong leaders there um, and a wonderful way to still learn too and, and, and to grow, whether to learn history or to learn what activism and direct action can look like today. Uh, please plug in. Paul, Dr. Poole, if I can ask one final question, sir. Where would Robeson be today? I mean, I know that's a bit of kind of historical fiction and, you know, dislocating people from time and bringing that. That's kind of a comic book trope, kind of people jumping around different different time frames. But but where do you, what, what would his life look like today? What kind of part of the movement would he plug into? How would he be received? If, if you could imagine Paul Robeson either kind of jumping time or being born right now or being in his prime right now, what do you think it looks like? It's so easy 
to imagine Paul Robeson in the summer of 2020. Responding to especially black young people, but others uh, of different races and, and uh, people of color older than young people who come out together and hold hands and face the threats of uh, menacing police and uh, by and large peaceful, uh, but uh, determined and uh, committed to uh, work together towards something that's going to demand a great change in society and sing and dance and uh, recreate the, the rituals of people collectively uh, sharing their freedom. There's their perhaps temporary and, and limited, but very real freedom as, as people. We got a little bit of feeling about that, of the dancing uh, after the results of the presidential election uh, uh, appeared. People danced in these streets for at least a day and had every reason to dance in the streets for a day. Well, those are the kind of moments uh, that rise to the level that a Robeson could respond to and pull together people around the, the greatest of social visions. That's where I see him in the summer of 2020, because I see W.B. Du Bois there too, and I see Muhammad Ali there too. I see them all there in that moment, uh, realizing the power of uh, collective energy and determination and thinking to themselves, if we now place them in history, and of course, Dr. King, uh, we were helping to lead to that. We knew it was gonna get there, not, a, not in our own time, but we knew it was gonna get there. Now we have to move forward from there and go forward further. I agree. I, I think in so many ways, he would, you know, earlier you referenced a quote with someone said, if Paul Robeson was a white man, he could have been president of the United States. I think he would have had to have wrestled with that fork in the road because Paul Robeson, an all-American athlete, pro athlete with his brain, with his sort of uh, gifts for oration and, and performance, and with the charisma that he had, he could, in this time period, if he walked a certain path, become president of the United States. Or he could kind of continue um, with his commitment to labor, to anti-fascism, anti-racism, uh, working on behalf of those on the margins. And I think he would have chosen again to risk it all. As uh, C.L.R. James, who knew him so well on the stage in the middle 1930s, they were young men, incredibly handsome young men, incidentally. Good looking brother. So good looking that uh, they had to hold those ladies off at a distance, you know, they, they didn't always do so. Um, they, uh, they, made their choices, but as James said about Robeson, the fact that he gave all that up, yeah. that's the proof of greatness. That is the proof of greatness, greatness of character. It's a profound challenge to all of us today. The willingness to forfeit personal gain for, the, for, for all of us, for the community. In so many ways, it's kind of a spirituality of socialism in, in personal practice. And as you said, it's this, it's not the voice, it is not the stage presence, it's not the athleticism, the Phi Beta Kappa, it's not all of that, 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 that truly make him legendary. It's a willingness to sacrifice for the whole. And so I, I, I am so grateful for the work that you've, you've done here um, in capturing this great soul in capturing this, this amazing life that we need to be reminded of. And so gratitude to you and, and, and Brother Law, Dr. Ware, and, and to Sharon Rudolph for this great gift that you've given us. And, and if I could also got a shout out everybody who made this night possible again, from Sister Maxine Phillips to Lawrence Dreyfus, uh, the Religion and Socialism Working Group, DSA Fund, International Committee of the DSA, Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color, Caucus, which is, a, that's one of my favorite words, by the way, Afro-socialist, such a dope word, and Rutgers University Press, everybody who plugged in and asked great questions. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Fran and Maxine and Caleb and everybody working the chat and working um, the Q&A too. This was a special uh, conversation. I'm grateful to you, sir. Thank you for sharing your brilliant mind. Um, 
and for being here with us. Make sure you check the chat. There's some great links in there before you go. Make sure you sort of screenshot it. The whole thing's being recorded. It'll be shared too, but uh, this is, I'm challenged and, and I'm, if I may say, I'm blessed by this night. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, everybody. Have a good night. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you liked what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon.